0: Warning, the following podcast has some foul language you may wish to earmuff the impressionable. It's Monday, June 27th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Chief Justice John Roberts used to be the big cheese on the court. Now is the standing of another type of cheese.
1: It's very rare, Michael, that the chief writes alone and that he... Uh, can't develop some compromise or be uh, smack in the middle of the conservative supermajority.
0: Agreeing with historian Joan Biscupic was CBS, who portrayed the loneliness of John Roberts, you know, of the Roberts court, this way.
1: Chief Justice John Roberts voted to uphold the 15-week Mississippi abortion ban, but refused to join the majority decision to overturn Roe or a subsequent 1992 opinion. With the court's newest justices, all nominated by former President Trump, there were five votes without him.
0: But really, why would it be any other way? It's the Roberts court because he is the chief justice, but didn't get to be the chief justice out of merit or a confidence vote of his conservative allies. Roberts was in the hopper to replace Sandra Day O'Connor. William Rehnquist died, whammo, let's name John Roberts Chief Justice, and they did. That's more usual than not as a way to name the Chief Justice. They're usually not an Associate Justice first, but I pointed out just to bring up the fact that his title was bestowed upon him by as much an accident as anyone else who is on the Supreme Court. For 15 years, Roberts was in the middle of the conservatives, which allowed him to align himself with them, or sometimes to be the fulcrum that decided where the court would go. But when Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed, that was no more, except for the title of chief, which means he gets some more clerical work, $12,000 more a year, the court gets to be named the Roberts Court, That is some cheap branding, isn't it? Roberts really isn't in the middle of anything except a movement where the other five conservatives are unbound. Last year, there was even an 8-to-1 decision where Roberts was the one that hadn't happened in 15 years. Roberts once relished his role as the guardian of the institution. He had the sway with his vote to block a conservative blockade of Obamacare, for example. Now his only chit to trade is an idea about prudence that none of the others seem much to care about. Maybe Roberts has some psychological hold on the other justices. They think he's such an amiable fellow that he will be able to power broke in the future. I doubt it. We hear this from the court a lot, though, that comedy is super important. Last week, Sonia Sotomayor pointed out how the justices respected each other as people, the high personal regard she had for Clarence Thomas, who, she points out, everyone loves because he knows every court worker by name i could just imagine thomas walking through the halls hi colleen you can't have an abortion oh yolanda how's your daughter she's not having an abortion that's because of me and rachel didn't you just get back from that baby shower in austin no more of those in your future because none of your friends are gonna be able to have an abortion that guy knows everyone People skills, warmth, reverence for the institution, they're subsumed when you have an ideologically driven majority who doesn't need the berubed human speed bump. You know what they do with speed bumps, right? They drive over them. And what does John Roberts get for saying, yeah, Roe versus Wade should go, but a little less quickly than the other ones? There has been one tangible benefit as far as I could tell. This was pop star Olivia Rodrigo playing the Glastonbury Festival over the weekend. To the justices, Samuel Alito, Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, Amy Coney Barrett, and Brett
1: Kavanaugh,
0: we hate you. She then launched into Lily Allen's song "Fuck You," but not to John Roberts. John Roberts avoided the Olivia Rodrigo, Lily Allen condemnation from another nation. I don't know how he did it. Perhaps, as with the case of the five mentioned justices. And the 19-year-old pop star who just named them, he's just easy to overlook. On the show today, okay, Roberts is quasi-irrelevant, is the court illegitimate? The spiel will indicate otherwise. But first, the pandemic was a boon to streaming services and a bane to movie theaters. And then a few months ago, Netflix stock cratered. This is a big change in what we and Wall Street were assuming was the future of entertainment. Editor-at-large of The Hollywood Reporter, Kim Masters, is here to talk about the state of streaming and how the means of acquiring our entertainment affects the entire culture. Kim Masters, up next. are two ways to cover show business as a show or as a business i'm interested in the third way which is i mean it's not that i invented it but how the show and the business shapes us culturally which we know and can feel as sort of a background condition but i think it's much more profound than we even realize like say for instance the cratering of netflix stock i would predict in five years the way most of us operate on the earth will be to some extent influenced by what happened in april to netflix other streaming services all these big hollywood studios no one's better to break this down than kim masters she's an editor at large at the hollywood reporter and host of the business on kcrw hello kim hello so it has been a few months since that netflix stock really hit hard times i think they went from a market capitalization meaning they're a company worth 300 billion dollars to about 80 billion dollars today tell me how the ripples of that go way beyond one company and one stock
1: well, it changed the way Wall Street looked at Hollywood, the way Hollywood looked at itself. Uh, It it was a flipping of a switch. You know, it it was uh, all in on streaming until it isn't. It's almost like visualizing this cartoon of, uh, should I say, lemmings running towards one cliff and then suddenly pivoting back and hoping there's not another cliff on the other side. So to me, it all seemed like, unsurprising that this would happen but wall street i have long observed you know these analysts on wall street they pay get they get paid so much money and the things they don't understand the personalities and the considerations that really drive the business they they just have a very limited tunnel vision view of the way this business
0: yeah. runs. Well, they're tra- they're paid to be right in the short term, which hurts long term thinking. I mean, there's no one Wall Street analyst once told me there's no difference between being wrong and being right too soon. So th- that gives birth to a dynamic where you know, everyone's lemming-like until they realize that they're at the cliff's edge.
1: Well, and they also don't, not that it's necessarily so relevant, but I do think it is somewhat relevant in terms of Netflix. They don't factor in the personality of who's running a company, and that can be enormously impactful. You know, these guys will all tell you, they're mostly guys, you know, oh, you know, we're enhancing shareholder value. We're all about the stock price, but they do things that are entirely irrational and don't enhance the value for the shareholders because of their egos. So if you don't understand them and their egos and their
0: rivalries and, you know, their, their petulant decisions and you don't really understand. So you're saying the Netflix story is specific to Reed Hastings or the dynamic that needs to be understood is how all these uh, all these studio heads and plutocrats, the ecosystem uh, that they operate in.
1: Well, the Netflix story there's there's there, there's the whole notion of we're all in on streaming and that's all we do. And by the way, we're not going to run our movies in theaters. It's all got to be on our site exclusively. And by the way, we don't do advertising, uh, and that's that's sacred text for us. There's no advertising on Netflix except now. Guess what? There is. So uh, these pronouncements about what you know how things are going to be, is, and people accept them and they look at. Uh, guys who are basically Silicon Valley guys and say, yeah, yeah, they reinvented the wheel and they did it better than Hollywood because Hollywood's so dumb. And it turns out some of these dumb rules in Hollywood exist for a reason. And I have watched Netflix move toward a more and more Hollywood model, slowly, glacially, reluctantly. But look where we are, you know? They're talking to uh, uh, one of the theater chains about having their movies run in theaters now. They are definitely making deals to get their advertising thing, not only to have an advertising supported tier, but to have it fast, because right now, like as we speak, they have laid off like 300 more people today. And do I think there was an element of personality in that? Yes, you know, I think it's run by Ted Sarandos. So there's the thought, the concept of we are streaming and we are streaming only. And then there's the execution within that concept, which is Ted Sarandos, who to, to a certain degree, you know, he, he's made his own decisions like every studio chief in Hollywood. And those decisions have led to consequences, I, you know, which some people would argue have affected the, the the performance of Netflix. Like, can you cut the cord or can you not cut the cord? What do you? Well, what do they got? Do you need to have it? Do you feel like you've watched something there lately, or you heard about something that you really want to watch, or do you feel like you could, you could save 17 bucks a month? You know. So there's there's multiple
0: layers of the whole thing. It's all fascinating as a as a money story and a Wall Street story and an entertainment story. But when I think of what Netflix represented, it was, and the phrase you and others use all the time, a fire hose. It was just a fire hose of entertainment. And another big thing that they always did was they were pioneers or certainly the ones that popularized binging. And these those those uh, ways of experiencing media and entertainment, I think really changed us, really fundamentally changed our relationship to stories and which stories broke through and were told. Do you think all of that, first of all, do you buy my premise and do you think that's going to change as Netflix changes?
1: It changed things, but not necessarily in the irrevocable way that people thought it was going to change things, right? It's I mean, binging was supposed to be the thing, right? That's what Netflix did. That was one of their hallmarks. And now you see the other streamers, they're dribbling them out one at a time, you know, two at a time. You don't get, they're not dropping all of hacks, you know, for you to watch the, at one time. And they have found, I think the reason for that is, you know, you, the engagement is better uh, and and it sustains and the word of mouth builds more and more when there's a bit of space between these um, episodes. So. You know, it changed it, but again, let's talk about movies, you know. It's, it, movies are dead in theaters. Uh, we're not going to have movies in theaters because Netflix, it's the model. That's what everybody wants. They want to watch everything in their living room. Well, first of all, that that I will say for the legacy studios, I think has was playing with fire, with, with you know, because it's well known to anybody who knows anything about the movie business. A movie released in theaters has many, many, many lives and throws off lots and lots of revenue all the way through to when you're watching it on a plane into your ho- or your hotel room. It, you know it's going to be electronic sell through. It's going to be here. It's going to be there. It, that doesn't exist. If you want to stream all of your movies, so you know that you are going to lose out on lots of money. You know, do you want to put all your movies on a streamer right away? That's that's just a. <laughs> I, I think was foreseeably a bad idea uh, and now you see them pivoting back you know not necessarily towards a full theatrical window but you know there was a fundamental existential question do you want to destroy movie theaters altogether uh, if you do you're you are definitely irrevocably transforming the business. You know, we're still in a state now, especially all of this was accelerated by COVID and the pandemic, so people couldn't go to the movies even if they wanted to. Maybe they lost the habit even more. Maybe TikTok is changing everything. We don't know quite where things are and where where they will shake out. But I can tell you that Top Gun is just costing like $900 million. I would argue that even though the geniuses at Paramount would have been that Paramount, the parent company of the studio Paramount would have been thrilled to put Top Gun on the streamer and, and get build the service and get subscribers. I would argue that probably when Top Gun gets to that streamer, it's still going to attract a lot of people who want to see it again, or maybe didn't quite get there the first time. So, you know, this idea of throwing everything onto the service I think is already out of fashion
0: and studios are pivoting away from it. Well, movie theaters were definitely charging usury rates on everything from uh, price of admission to bees, and making it incredibly inconvenient. And we're seeing the, them, yeah. some of
1: them play around with pricing now, you know, they have to adjust and there's no question about that, but, but did, you know, should they cease to exist? Be, you know, there are movies, I'm sure that if you care at all about movies, you kind of want to see on the big screen.
0: Yeah, but those are always – I do have to say those are always the same kind of movies, which is a big spectacle, which is, I guess, what movies have definitely trended to being when I think about movies and movie theaters, but which is why I like the streaming service and the HBO service. They don't have to be those kind of movies, and that's not why I go to theaters.
1: Yeah, I mean there's lots of questions. Will those movies be enough to sustain enough theaters for the model to survive? I don't know. Uh, you know, do you get enough out of putting a movie on a streamer if you put The Matrix on a streamer it, like, you know, the Warners did last year? Is that worth it? <laughs> I mean, would I don't know. They won't let us see the data. So we don't know. We are in the dark about all of it. I, I, I do think that every once in a while. You know, if you say, well, it's going to be a theatrical movie and that's that and and talent demands it, say it has the clout, somebody like, you know, has the clout to say like Tom Cruise, right. something comes along and upends conventional wisdom in
0: the movie business
1: over and over and over again.
0: You know, I will say as far as that goes, one good thing about streaming that no one talks about is if the Irishman were in a movie theater, I'd have to walk out and feel bad about myself. But on a streamer, I could just stop watching. Well, I won't even talk about the bathroom and sandwich breaks I took on that question.
1: <laughs> but I don't know that we're going to see that anymore. You know, that was, a, going back to the personality, that that was Ted Sarandos, you know, head of Netflix uh, content, thirsting for an Oscar. So he bought, he bought numerous movies that nobody else would make for numbers that nobody else would do. In some cases, like Roma... You know, I'm very glad he did. And I will note, I saw it in a theater. Where? At Netflix, in their screening room. <laughs> so uh, I got the theatrical. I wouldn't want to see it on my TV. I'm, I guarantee you it's a different movie in the theater. Uh, but, but you know, he chased that and chased it. Uh, I don't, now, given what they're going through, I'm not sure how much of that they're going to be doing. You know, I don't think they're chasing that anymore. And they're not going to, and it's a loss. If you want to talk about the upside of what Netflix was doing, they were making stuff that people didn't want to make. So yeah. some of it
0: was good. Roma is such a great example to me of a movie that would benefit from a theater just because there was never a time that my wife and I both agreed we were in the in the mood for Roma. But if we knew this thing were, was going to be in a movie theater for a couple weeks and it was it was at that point likely to win the Oscar, I think I'd have said, we got to go see Roma and we'd have seen Roma. And to this point, I still have not seen Roma.
1: And you would have experienced it in the way it was meant to be seen. And I, that's one reason I made myself get off my butt and go to Netflix to watch Exactly. It. But you're saying without Netflix, there'd be no Roma to see, period. I don't think anybody, at, especially at the number that he wanted, the way he wanted the detail, and it has to be this, and we can't repeat a car and have them, you know, vintage car. we got to get new vintage cars for every scene. It's like, you know, that's a big ask. And I don't think anybody else was going to even think about it.
0: So Disney... As I listen to your show, it seems that you and Matt Bellamy, who comes on to uh, talk about the state of the business in the first five minutes of every, of every episode of the business. I have gleaned from your discussions that you are both very suspicious of Disney Plus as a streaming service. Would you say in much the same way you were as Netflix or um, a little less dire and the red warning lights aren't flashing so hot with disney plus i mean i hope we haven't given that impression i've always
1: believed in disney plus disney has the most formidable intellectual property out there it's the only studio that's a brand that people know what it is you know and they have so much so i've never doubted Disney Plus what I doubted and I think Matt too was the strategy of what they called all in on Disney Plus sacrificing I mean this this company has so much at stake you know Netflix doesn't have theme parks Netflix doesn't have the the mighty merchandise machine of Disney so uh, my my argument was over and over again are you can you launch and it's not a Disney property but you take the point can you launch Harry Potter world off of a streaming movie. I haven't seen that yet as a thing that can happen and and happen with any kind of regularity. Disney is launching theme park attractions. They've got a bunch of avatars coming. uh, Based on the reaction to the trailer, I'd say the appetite all these years later is still there. They have theme park stuff. They have... Indiana Jones stuff, you know, Netflix has none of that to consider. All they want to do is throw spaghetti at the wall and hope some of it's enough of it sticks that you keep paying the money every month. You know, D- Disney has so much at stake. So all in on streaming seemed crazy to me. Now, of course, and I, I do feel for Bob Chapek, the CEO at a certain way, Wall Street's like beating him up saying, you've got to go all in on streaming. That's our mantra, all in on streaming. And then Netflix hits a wall and they go, don't go all in on streaming. <laughs> and they pivot. But I think the pivot is good. I, I hope that the pivot will, will you know, help Disney stay on the right track. There was this hysteria, this tulip fever all in on streaming. You know, think about it, guys. What are you sacrificing?
0: For most of our lives, uh, the stories we were told were told in chunks, discrete chunks, sitcoms, even, you know, St. Elsewhere and Hill Street Blues would have maybe through lines, but it wouldn't be as episodic in nature. So you expected things to end. Uh, maybe in some other kinds of entertainment, you had a cliffhanger. What Netflix did was it was all cliffhanger reward, cliffhanger reward. Binging was this fundamental change in I think dopamine. And I think it had an effect on us. And another thing that it did, just the sheer amount of content and greenlighting absolutely everything, but also not allowing shows that seem to have artistic merit but not a chance to bloom, just letting them die. And when you think about some of the great stories we've been told, um, from cheers to the leftovers, it was always the dynamic that studio or TV heads would believe in a show and let them flourish maybe when the audience wasn't there. But I do think it fundamentally changed our relationship with the media we consume and the stories that we consume. And I don't think it's for the better.
1: I mean, yeah, I, I think the smart ones will not do it. Is what I think. I mean, I don't, I, I almost feel like the last episode of the second season of Hacks was the perfect end, but they're renewing it. <laughs> they're going to stick with it because it works. So I'm not sure that the Netflix, I don't, I'm not sure that Netflix is going to lead. And, you know, you see that there is possibly uh, one of the reasons for Netflix's issues is that they changed their philosophy. You know, they, they, as I've written about it, they fired Cindy Holland, who had been the one who started it out, Their original programming. You know, they had to have originals. They knew they were going to lose a lot of the friends and the office as the studios pulled them back for their own streaming services. So they went for originals. They had Orange is a New Black. They had House of Cards. They had, you know, a string of things that worked. They fired her. You know, Ted Sarandos fired her. She was the curator of Netflix. She curated. The last one that she was really involved with was Queen's Gambit. Uh, That was something that people like you and me chatter about and talk about and engage with. You know, it was was a limited series, but it was a curated thing by a creator who had a specific vision. And the the people who are now running Netflix made fun of Queen's Gambit. You know, they called it Holland's Folly because Cindy Holland backed it and believed in it. They are going for this broader populist thing on the upside, and you cannot take it away from them. You know, you get uh, Squid Game which is a global phenomenon. On the downside, you get a lot of people who I hear anecdotally, and not just anecdotally, because it's in the results, cutting the cord, saying, I don't really need, I don't have a thing I need to watch on Netflix right now. You know, we're we're in difficult financial times. I don't need, this is the one of the most, I think it's the most expensive service. People say they're bailing, they will bail out, and maybe they'll come back when they have something to watch. But I think the lack of curation, and the lack of vision and, you know, trying to just appeal to just this broad,
0: popular populist segment, I'm not sure it's the best strategy. Kim Masters is editor-at-large at The Hollywood Reporter and the host of The Business on KCRW and podcasts. Thanks so much, Kim. Thank you. And now the spiel. Within the last five days, the Supreme Court has weakened the separation of church and state, displayed terrible illogic in New York rifle and pistol, v. Bruin and dismantled the traditional application of the Miranda warning. Well, a couple of these decisions are ones I could live with, prayers on the 50-yard line, because I believe in pluralism. None are my preferred rulings. And at least one, guns, really hurts me, my community, and good governance in general. And then there's Dobbs which isn't just seismic, it's destabilizing. Which brings us to the very question of the court's legitimacy. The three members of the Supreme Court in their dissent cited their predecessors, Justices O'Connor, Kennedy, and Souter, three Republican appointees, obviously, when they said, quote, they knew that the legitimacy of the court is earned over time, citing a specific footnote that those three signed on to, And the current court went on to say they would also have recognized it, legitimacy, can be destroyed much more quickly. The verdict, they wrote, quote, undermines the court's legitimacy. Senator Elizabeth Warren went with a much more active verb than undermines on ABC's This Week, This Week, This court has
1: lost legitimacy. They have burned whatever legitimacy they may still have had after their gun decision, after their voting decision, after their union decision. They just took the last of it and set a torch to it with the Roe versus Wade opinion.
0: And the sentiment wasn't simply expressed out of frustration. Well, more than frustration, despair at having lost the decision. No, Justice Sotomayor smelled the smoke given off by Senator Warren's conflagration as Dobbs was being argued before her. Here she is questioning Mississippi Solicitor General Scott Stewart at the time. Will this institution survive the stench that this creates? In the
1: public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts.
0: I I, I don't see how it is possible. It's what will this institution survive? Undermined legitimacy? Yes. Torched or unable to survive this crisis in legitimacy? I am not so sure. In fact, I am sure that it will survive. In fact, we already know it will. But before we get to that, let me spend a second or two defining and talking about legitimacy as it's talked about. Like recession, legitimacy is felt more than carefully charted, but recession is defined by something tangible, if inexact, two quarters of economic decline. Like pornography, legitimacy is perceived to be at a level different from the intellectual. But unlike this very court once put it, legitimacy is not so impressionistic that you can only know it when you see it. The legitimacy of an institution lives in the feelings of the people, all the people, toward that institution, and we do know that overturning Roe v.ersus Wade was unpopular. But that alone doesn't make the court illegitimate. The court once ruled that flag burning, which is a deeply unpopular act, was protected speech. The public didn't find the court illegitimate at the time, and not just for reasons of overall thrust of the court. Time and time again, the Warren Court ruled in favor of criminals and accused criminals, and those were unpopular rulings. The court wasn't said to be illegitimate, or maybe it was said to be illegitimate, but it wasn't illegitimate. So what's the difference between those unpopular rulings and now? Is it that those rulings favored more liberal elites? Is it that they occurred before social media and instant outrage? Maybe that illegitimate is on a continuum, a couple stops past unpopular. Popular. I think it's actually something else. Illegitimate as an insult, an assertion, or claim just means I don't want to have to believe this. Illegitimate as an accurate descriptor, that is actually determined by looking how the court functions with other institutions. The Senate, the House, state governments, the executive branch, all these institutions are essentially both PH paper, and solution. Is the executive branch illegitimate? Well, let's see if the Justice Department holds or folds. That makes that determination. Is the Senate illegitimate? Let's see how the court rules on the laws. The proof that the court is still legitimate is this. As soon as they struck down New York State's gun laws, what did New York State do? Convened an emergency session in acknowledgement that the rule is legitimate. They have to follow it. The states that are all or were all waiting for the Supreme Court rule to trigger their anti-abortion laws. Sure, they won, but that's also an acknowledgement of the court's legitimacy, as are the states on the other side, which waited and reacted to a ruling strengthening their abortion laws, conveys legitimacy, shows they think the court has legitimacy. The ruling was not a fiction to disregard And no one who actually had the force of law with them acted as if it was. The public can sour on a decision or react with anguish, rightly so in this case, and can say, you lost all legitimacy in my eyes. But the people who hold legitimacy ultimately within the system, if they're acting otherwise, it indicates the court has legitimacy. Maybe you heard that Andrew Jackson quote once about The court and legitimacy. Justice Marshall has made his ruling. Now let's see him enforce it. Andrew Jackson was full of bluster. Andrew Jackson biographers were skilled aphorists. The quote didn't appear until 20 years after Jackson's death. And in the case in question, Worcester versus Georgia, there was nothing actually for anyone to enforce. The ruling was actually really consequential, really important. Everyone followed it. It uh, pretty much was the foundation for the doctrine of tribal sovereignty. Very legitimate decision. With bad rulings and good rulings, and the Supreme Court has made much worse decisions than this one, they have still maintained their legitimacy. There was never a situation where uh, some equivalent of the Court of Avignon was making parallel rulings to the Supreme Court and no one knew which lessons to follow. The South seceded. They didn't follow the court. They lost. They were meant to pay. Is this court legitimate just through the prism of abortion and abortion rulings? Was this court legitimate because the original Roe v. Wade ruling was seven to two? Were those two dissenters dissenters or were they just illegitimate members of the court? Were the four who rejected Roe in the more recent Planned Parenthood versus Casey case, were they illegitimate? This, the Dobbs case, is a destructive decision and it is made by justices who All along told us they were going to decide this way in every way except saying, uh, as they were sitting in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee, oh yeah, I'll definitely be deciding this way. We all knew it. They all said it. They all went to lengths to obfuscate where any fair reading by anyone this side of Susan Collins knew what they were going to do. It was right to deny them the vote. It was certainly right to oppose them, figuring this day would come. But the idea of legitimacy, in my opinion, cannot only be cited when the bad thing happens after your court was stocked with actors who told you the bad thing was gonna happen. And by the way, all of those same justices who maybe we're now saying or some people are saying contribute to the court's illegitimacy, they were the ones in question when Mike Pence's lawyers sparred with Donald Trump's illegitimate election architect John Eastman, where both those gentlemen ultimately decided that the plan to steal the election would lose nine to zero in the Supreme Court. Eastman and Trump, those guys are illegitimate. The backstop to them was. Supreme Court of the United States. The very notion of the Supreme Court of the United States not going along with that act of illegitimacy goes to show the court's actual status as legitimate. The court, the six of the six three, they're not anything like right or brave or fair or unbiased or wise or logical or beneficent or moral or constitutionally correct. I don't believe those six who overturn Roe to be exhibiting any of those traits. They are illegitimate, frustrating as that may be. That's it for today's show. Corey War is the Just Assistant Producer. Joel Patterson's the Just Senior Producer. Michelle Pesca has the title of COO of Peachfish Productions. She was once also Chief Executive of Content for Quickster. Short-lived. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com/slash The Gist. Umpruji pru Dooproo. And thanks for listening.